Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Christopher Golden. Chris is the New York Times bestselling and Bram Stoker award-winning author of Ararat, Snowblind, Dead Ringers, and of Saints and Shadows, among many other novels. With Mike Mignola, he is the co-creator of two cult favorite comic book series, Baltimore and Joe Gollum, a cult detective. Chris is also the editor of such anthologies as Seize the Night, The New Dead, and Dark Cities. His upcoming novel, Red Hands, which is on sale December 8th through St. Martin's Press, is a part of the Ben Walker series, which has been optioned by AGC for television development. This new supernatural thriller finds weird shit expert Ben Walker on the hunt for a young woman who has been infected by a deadly bioweapon and must unravel the mystery of her now deadly touch. Chris also just finished a new horror novel for St. Martin's Press. Chris, we are very excited to have you on the show today. How's it going? It's going great. Thank you so much for having me. My first question is always, where are you in the world right now? So tell us, where are you in the world? You know what? I am lost in the limbo of COVID is where I am. I'm in Massachusetts, born and raised and lived here for all but three years of my life. I grew up in Framingham, Massachusetts, and I live north of Boston now. And yeah, it snowed the day before Halloween. So, And tell us, you mentioned COVID. How has that affected you? I always ask this question because writers live an isolated experience, so it doesn't necessarily always affect writers. But for you, what's your experience been over the past six to 10 months? You know, it's been really, I think for everybody, it's been incredibly strange. It's just such a weird, surreal limbo experience. I do work at home. I'm a full-time writer, so I, it didn't change my job necessarily, but it changes the tenor of everything. My wife is a sixth grade teacher. My daughter is a senior in high school. They are both currently, I mean, not as we speak right now, but they are both currently in school. And that's incredibly stressful. You know, just the whole thing. I mean, you know, it's so strange to not be able to see your friends. I was just saying to my wife the other day, you know, I just, I can't wait for the moment when we can just go, hey, you know, let's, do you want to, you know, go meet up with friends and just go to dinner and have it be casual and just not think about it and not stress about it. The anxiety level brought about by COVID and by the US election, which is two days away as we record this, and by, you know, concern about my family, concern about my parents, my wife's parents, you know, it's just, it's incredible. And of course, the business situation for everybody is not good. So this is the downer too. But the honest answer to the question is that I just feel like the level of anxiety for everybody has just ratcheted up so high. There are a lot of writers who have been physically and mentally incapable of doing their work. They've just been sort of fetalized by all of it. And thankfully, that didn't happen to me. But it certainly hasn't been easy. You mentioned people feeling trapped and unable to write. 
You said that you luckily have not been as affected. Do you have any words of wisdom for those at home who maybe are looking for inspiration and oh, you how, know, to get- how to get out of it? Well, so two things I would say. The first thing is I always believe that like the flight attendant tells you on the plane, you have to put your own oxygen mask on first before you can help anybody else. And I think that there's nothing wrong with self-care. There's nothing wrong with, you know, curling up in a ball or reading a book or going for a walk to try to ease your mind. As far as how to sort of kickstart and get yourself back to writing, you know, editors cover your ears because my advice is to actually go write a thing that isn't what you're obligated to write. It isn't something that's on deadline. So no matter how far behind you might be or how stressed you might be, if you're stuck with that anxiety or in writer's block, I always feel like the best thing to do is just go write, go write a poem, go write a short story that's got nothing to do with what you owe somebody for a deadline or the project that's been, you know, breathing down your neck. So I think a lot of times it just means you need to grease the gears a little with something that doesn't pressure you. Love that. Before we dive into process, you mentioned you're in Massachusetts and you grew up in Massachusetts. Did you ever travel to New York to work as a writer? Is that necessary? Walk us through your career trajectory. Did you always want yeah. to be an author? You know, I went to college at Tufts University in Massachusetts. And when I was in high school, I thought I wanted to go to film school. But I knew that I didn't, I didn't want to roll the dice on film school without having a good foundation. So I wanted to go to the best college that would have me and get my undergraduate degree and then go to film school for graduate school. But I was always a reader and I was always writing. And while I was in college, I realized that I didn't want to pursue that film school track, that what I really wanted to do was write novels. So by the time I graduated, I had started my first novel of Saints and Shadows when I was a senior at Tufts. After graduation, I knew I wanted to work in New York if I could and in publishing if I could. And I was very fortunate that I managed to get a job at a company called BPI Communications, which was then the parent company for Billboard, The Hollywood Reporter, Musician Magazine, Backstage, and a whole bunch of other magazines. And within about nine months, I was the licensing manager for the whole international corporation. And I worked on the Billboard Music Awards, the first one and the second one. And I worked with America Top 40 Radio, and I worked on all kinds of stuff really young. But the other thing I did was continue to work on my first novel. And being in New York was a huge help because I had a fantastic boss who had no problem if I took a long lunch as long as I got my work done. And so I would hop in a cab or hop on the subway, and I would go downtown, and I would meet up with Ginger Buchanan, who was an editor I knew who ended up buying my first novel and actually also my first nonfiction book, which was the first book I had published. And so I would see Ginger, I would meet up with my agent. I ended up doing the very first X-Men novel, which seems weird that there hadn't been before that, but there hadn't been. And that came about from being in New York, and I work in comics, and I was in the midst of the comics scene in New York. And so yeah, New York, those three years in New York were absolutely foundational for me. So we always talk themes on the podcast, specifically in regards to process. I would love to focus this episode on your writing process for Red Hands. Does that sound good? Sure, whatever you want. Before we do, would you be okay with me doing my worst reading the description of the book? Sure. In best-selling author Christopher Golden's supernatural thriller, Red Hands, sometimes a story is a warning, 
Sometimes the warning comes too late. When a mysterious and devastating bioweapon causes its victims to develop red hands, the touch of death, weird science expert Ben Walker is called to investigate. A car plows through the crowd at a July 4th parade. The driver climbs out, sick and stumbling, reaching out, and everyone he touches drops dead within seconds. Maeve Sinclair watches in horror as people she loves begin to die and she knows she must take action. But in the aftermath of this terror, it's Maeve who possesses that killing touch, fleeing into the mountains. Struggling with her own grief and confusion, Maeve faces the dawning realization that she will never be able to touch another human being again. Weird shit expert Ben Walker is surprised to get a call from Alina Boudreaux, director of the newly restructured Global Science Research Coalition. There's an upheaval in the organization and she needs to send someone she can trust to Jericho Falls. Whoever finds Maeve Sinclair first will unravel the mystery of her death touch, and many are willing to kill her for that secret. Walker's assignment is to get her off the mountain alive, but as Maeve searches for a hiding place, hunted and growing sicker by the moment, she begins to hear an insidious voice in her head. And the yearning, the need, the hunger to touch another human being continues to grow. When Walker and Maeve meet at last, they will unravel a stunning legacy of death and betrayal and a malignant secret as old as history. And I've got a couple quotes. The neck-whipping action and shifting points of view give the reader a wide-angle perspective, invoking maximum terror on every page. For fans of horror thriller series like those by Jonathan Mabry and Mira Grant, that's from Booklist. And the other quote is, Red Hands is a brilliant, devious, and deeply disturbing thriller that blurs the line between fantastic and our very real world. Highly recommended. And that's by Jonathan Mabry, New York Times bestselling author of V Wars and Rage, who we've had on the podcast. So yeah, with that being said, thank you for listening to me read your description. And yeah, so how does it feel to A, have the book coming up and also to get such awesome quotes and many more on the Amazon page as well? Well, I mean, obviously, it's always wonderful to get the support of other authors. You know, in a weird way, every time you write, you're writing on different levels for different audiences. You know, I write for myself first and I write for the sort of end user readers, right? The people who are out there buying the books and supporting. But when you're part of a writing community, you're also sort of anxiously writing in the shadow of your hope for reactions from your fellow writers. And so to have that support, to have enthusiasm from other writers is always huge for me. I also was thrilled to get a star from Booklist on their review. You know, I've had them before, but they're not given lightly. So that was fantastic. Yeah. And Red Hands, you know, it's, I finished it a long time ago. It's, I can't even remember at this point. It seems like it's the longest time between finishing and release of any of the books I've done in a long time. And I think, you know, scheduling wise and COVID wise, there are a lot of elements to that. So I'm so happy it's finally coming out. And I'm so happy it's not coming out on election day. Let's dive into the process of writing Red Hands. You mentioned that you finished it a little while ago, but I'm sure the process is still fresh in your brain. As far as the inception of this idea, it's part of the Ben Walker series. But A, how did this idea specifically come about? And then B, how does it fit into the greater Ben Walker series? Well, you know, one of the things that happens with me is I usually have any number of sort of partial ideas. I have a file of sort of thoughts and titles and characters and mini plots, and they're not always the whole idea. They're usually not the whole idea, I should say. And so 
things are always sort of moving around in my head as far as what I want to do next. And the fundamental idea in Red Hands is one I'd been sort of toying with in the back of my mind for a long time. This idea of somebody who gets this this death touch, which means you can't ever touch the people that you love for fear that you might kill them. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that we might actually be in a position where we are concerned about touching the people we love for fear that we might kill them. Fortunately, in red hands, there's only one person at a time who has this affliction. So the idea had been sort of sitting around for a while, just in a very general way. And I had written Ararat, which was the first Ben Walker novel. And in Ararat, Walker was one of an ensemble of characters. Each of the books, I should say, does have an ensemble of characters. And Walker is usually only one member of that ensemble. But while I was writing, and certainly when I finished Ararat, I had the sensation that Walker himself was a character I wanted to keep moving through the weird world with and keep sort of having adventures with. And so I wrote The Pandora Room with Walker. And again, the ensemble is different, but Walker continues on. And both of those books have big international settings and big international stakes and all of that. And so by the time I finished The Pandora Room, I was a little mentally exhausted with it. And I love the book. And I think everybody should read it because I'm very proud of it. But by the time I was done, I thought, you know what? I want to bring Walker into a different environment. I want to bring him back to the United States. I want to put him in a different climate. And I want the stakes to feel a little bit more immediate and personal, which is why we have this situation where Maeve Sinclair is not just potentially killing people around her, but she herself is sick and suffering. And we're trying to figure out how can we save her without having other people die for her. And then I also, the other element that was missing, so I had the fundamental idea of Red Hands. Then I knew I wanted to make Walker part of that story. And then finally, the other element that was coming into my head was that I felt like if I was going to do a story about someone who can kill you with a touch, there would definitely be echoes of Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death. And my only decision was, do I pull those echoes out? And in other words, do I explore them on the page so the audience knows I'm doing it, or do I make it more subtle? And I just thought, no, I want to make this a real homage and explore it. And so like the fundamental concept of not being able to touch your loved ones, the sort of plague element of the Mask of the Red Death comes into play. And again, all of this written long before COVID. I finished it, I want to say, in January or December. And yeah, or even earlier than that, December. I think I finished it in December of last year. And so it'll have been a year from delivery to publication. And of course, I had no way to know that we were on the verge of the coronavirus. And how would you say you find a balance between creating a standalone story and obviously fitting the story into the greater Ben Walker series? How do you find the balance? What's the art of that? Yeah, well, you know, the thing is that Walker does change and evolve from book to book. And, you know, there are some characters who do appear or reappear, I should say, although in 
Red Hands, the only character who has appeared in prior Ben Walker novels is Walker himself. I should say that we see his son, actually, in Red Hands. And actually, this is the first time we've met him on the page because he's only referred to in the previous books. I think for me, what I want is to give you an experience that doesn't rely on the others. So for me, it's like if I finish a book and I feel like the story is not complete, I'm frustrated by that. But also, if I start a book and I feel like I'm missing a lot, that frustrates me too. So I want to make sure that the reader can pick up any of these books and not feel like they're not getting the whole story, not feel like they have to go. I mean, of course, I want them to read it and get excited about it and want to go out and buy the other books. But I don't want the reader to feel as though somehow they can't enjoy this book without spending money on the others. I want them to have a complete experience. Let's talk about, you know, you briefly went into the process that you went into with this book, but what about once you come up with that idea, can you walk us through those next steps? I imagine it's, you know, coming up with the other characters, it's outlining. Are you a big outliner? You know, I do outline, but it differs somewhat from project to project. I also collaborate a lot, or I have. And in collaborating, I usually have a more a stricter outline, a more thorough outline. I also tend to do this thing that editors hate, which is I'll give them an outline that has all the dominoes set up, but doesn't explain what happens after. So, in other words, to me, you know, it should be enough to know, <laughs> should be enough to know what all the dominoes are. You don't need me to tip them over, you know, to see how they fall out. But that requires a lot of trust on the part of an editor and a publisher. So sometimes you have to, you know, go through and explain all of that when you're sort of pitching an idea. But for me, once I know what the component parts are, for instance, with red hands, once I knew I wanted my central concept, this particular concept, and I wanted it to be a Ben Walker novel, and I wanted it to have connective tissue to the Mask of the Red Death, and I wanted it to be about Walker as a human being realizing that he needs to be responsible for his son and responsible for, and you know, you can't save the world unless you save yourself, you know? Once I had all those thoughts in my head, then it is a matter of like, okay, I know that's what I want. And then I, I do sit down and I outline, you know, I wouldn't say very thoroughly, but I wouldn't say thinly either, you know, sort of the first half of the book and then sort of sum up for myself kind of where I intended to go because I don't want to lock myself in. And I know that if I spend a whole lot of time breaking down every scene in the second half of the book, I'm going to change most of it anyway, because it is a process of discovery. You know, as I write, I realize, oh, this character is actually important. And I thought it was only sort of like a one-off, one-scene character. Or I realize a character that I intended to be larger or more important is not. For instance, in writing Red Hands, Maeve's father had a very minor role in my outline. And as I was writing, I realized that I'm writing about Walker evaluating his own responsibility toward his son and how to him, what he's trying to do to save Maeve is sort of a stand-in for him taking responsibility for his own child. And I couldn't have Maeve's father, Ted, allow Walker to be his surrogate without 
forcing Ted to allow that. I just couldn't imagine that Maeve's father wouldn't want to be the one doing what Walker was doing. So I hadn't really thought that out. And it's just an example of the kinds of sort of evolutions that happen while I'm writing. And I just thought, what do I need Ted to be as a person to allow Walker to be that surrogate for him? And that made Ted a much more interesting character to me, a richer character, a more complex character. But that's just an example. Other characters change and grow. They come into the story because I need them, but then I find something different and special for them to have as a role in the story. There's another character named Rue Crooker, who was a one-off character in one scene. And then as soon as I wrote her in that scene, I was like, oh, wait, okay. I understand how useful she can be to me, not only in telling this story, but in connecting the reader to the humanity of the story that we're telling. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writerexperience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. What is your process like, the greater process of going through the novel itself? Are you, I think one guest we had described that process as almost ironing a sheet, you know, going through over and over until it's perfect. Would you say that that's your process for going through the entire book? Are you more focusing in on chapter by chapter? I think, you know, for me, I revise so much while I'm writing. I revise by paragraph. I revise by scene. I revise by chapter. But I try to forge ahead as much as possible and think of it in the sense of like, you know, of a drain pipe getting, you know, like your gutter pipe getting clogged by leaves over time so that the water doesn't flow. You know, the rainwater doesn't really flow through and it just gets clogged up and you have to clean the gutter, okay? This is an inelegant metaphor, but it's colorful in my head. So the process of writing for me is one in which all my little minor dissatisfactions, whether I can put my finger on exactly why I'm dissatisfied or not, are leaves. And they clog up the gutter and the water slows down and eventually, the gutter gets clogged. And that is my metaphor for saying that 
numerous times over the course of writing a novel, I will stop and go back to the beginning. And I will start revising and editing from page one every time I do that. So for instance, in the novel that I just finished for St. Martin's, I probably did that five times. Usually the first time is about, I want to say about 40,000 words is usually around where it happens, where everything just sort of breaks down. And I'm like, okay, I can keep forging ahead. I can keep sort of struggling to try to get through the backed up, you know, gutter pipe, (laughs) or I can go clean it out. And that means I go back to the beginning and I improve the sentences, I improve the structure, I improve the characters. But the most important thing is improving the flow of events and relationships. Because the more you write, the more you understand both what you're writing about and the characters you're writing about. And so for me, at least, that sort of, okay, I hate doing it every time I do it. I hate doing it, but I'm like, okay, because I want to make progress. And I always have to remind myself, no, no, this is progress. Just because I'm going back to the beginning doesn't mean I'm not moving forward in the sense of getting closer to my completed work. And so I struggle with that, wanting to have more words, more pages, but then I'm like, no, no, what's important is, are they good words? Are they good pages? So that's my process, I guess. (laughs) You've written comic books before. Can you walk us through from your experience, the differences, the key differences between writing a comic book, obviously they're very different processes, and a novel. From your perspective, what are the pros and cons and the challenges of both of those mediums? Well, I think, so the first thing I would say is that oftentimes comic book writers think they can write prose novels or short stories, and prose writers think that they can write comics. This is not true. (laughs) There are two completely different mediums and completely different, I don't know, schools of thought, I guess. That's the wrong word, the wrong phrase. But, you know, they're different narrative structures and they require different tools. So you have to learn to write comics just as you have to learn to write a play or a screenplay or poetry or prose. So it is very different. And I actually think that people who don't love comics shouldn't try to write them. Because I think that coming into writing a comic book without understanding the way that the art and the words rely on one another to tell the story is just crazy. I mean, I'll give you, for instance, a number of years ago, a few years ago, Charlene Harris and I did a collaboration together. We did a trilogy of graphic novels called Cemetery Girl. And it was such a fantastic experience. But what was great about it is it came about mostly because Charlene wanted to learn to write comics. This is an author who has sold millions and millions and millions of copies around the world, but she didn't just assume that she could write comics. She wanted to learn how to write comics. And so, you know, working with her was wonderful because she didn't want to have me do it. She wanted to do her share. So I did my pages, she did her pages, we would edit each other. And we would have conversations in which I would say things like, you know, Charlene, look at this page that you've described. And I would talk to her about how much action you could contain on one page, how much we could see on one page, how you need to communicate with the artist so that the art shows you the movement of a character and the mood of a character. And also just to say to her, she would have things in her panel descriptions 
And I said to her one day, you know, Charlene, you just have to remember that if the character can't do it, the artist can't draw it or something like that. You know, so she was putting in some commentary that was sort of like something that would be between the lines in a comic that you can't show. If you want to say that a character is a certain type of person, you have to have them do or say something that shows us that. So it's just a fun process of going through that. But a lot of writers who are new to comics don't think they need to take the time to learn. They think they can just automatically do it because if they can do one thing, they can do another. I guess the other thing I would add is that similarly, people assume that if you're a screenwriter, that you automatically can write comics. And while they're sort of closer relatives, they're not the same. So it is a, each thing is its own discipline that needs to be learned. And what about writing prose, writing novels? Do you gravitate towards more? I imagine that's where you're kind of at more these days. So is there a reason why you prefer working in the medium of novels? Well, you know, I have grown up doing both. So I've been writing comics professionally as long as I've been writing prose professionally or close enough. And I do have a ton of comic book projects coming out next year from Dark Horse with Mike Mignola. I mean, it must be five or six projects coming out in 2021, partly because of things that were delayed. You know, they were mostly finished, but were delayed because of COVID. And so I love comics and I have such great satisfaction of writing a comic book script and then seeing what the artist has done with it. There's such pleasure in that because, you know, you've only laid the groundwork, you know? Having an artist come in and bring it to life is when you see whether you were successful or not. You know, whereas with a short story or a novel, you can read it and be satisfied with it. You'd be happy with what you wrote. With a comic book script, you can't really know until you see it illustrated. But where novels and short stories are concerned, things I've written on my own. I love collaborating. You know, it's fun. It's hard work to collaborate harder than writing things on your own. But I do find that the things that are closest to my heart are always the prose stories and novels that I've written by myself, because they're the ones that are really intimate, if that makes sense. As far as the editing process, when you've gotten as far as you can, I imagine you're always in touch with an editor, but walk us through the actual process of the editor going through, giving you notes and what that looks like, and also Do you have advice for those writers kind of working with an editor how to make that experience more smooth? Yeah, I do. You know, so firstly, I've worked with so many different editors over the years. I love my current editor at St. Martin's, Michael Homler. I've worked with some fantastic editors who are smart and really willing to get their hands dirty in going through the manuscript with you and making intelligent suggestions, not to make the book what they think it should be, but to make a better version of the book you wanted to write. And that's really what you want the editor to do, right? But there are good editors, there are bad editors, there are, you know, effective and ineffective editors. The number one thing I would say, and having been an editor myself too, I've edited short story anthologies, but I've also edited books. The number one thing I would say is that you have to learn to not react immediately to the notes that you get. (laughs) Because so often, you know, particularly when I was younger, I would get notes from an editor and I would be irritated. And sometimes I'd be irritated because I didn't think, I didn't agree with the editor that a book needed a certain thing that the editor thought it should need or 
that something needed to be further explored or explained that the editor thought ought to be. But sometimes, even though I didn't initially admit it to myself, I was just annoyed because the editor was either right or probably right, and it meant more work. And so I think so many times authors bristle because it is an intimate process to write a novel or a novella or a short story. And authors think, well, how can anybody know? It's like when somebody tells you something about your own child. You know, you think I don't know my kid. I know my kid better than you do. You think you know my kid better than me? Or my wife used to get irritated because I had female friends who would make comments about my personality or something that they would know about me. And my wife would think to herself, you know, really? You think you know him better than I know him? I'm married to him. And that is what it feels like a lot of times when an editor, you know, particularly when you're just starting out, when an editor is giving you sometimes significant notes on a manuscript. I said, well, you can't know my spouse or my kid better than I know them. And that's true. They can't, but they can know them differently. They can see them with other eyes. You know, my wife is a school teacher. And because she's a school teacher, we would always go into parent meetings with our children's teachers with very open eyes, you know, like tell us what they're doing wrong, (laughs) you know. But so many parents just think that their baby is perfect. And if something is wrong, it's got to be the teacher's fault. And again, this is what it is like a lot of times with you know, sometimes writers who are just starting out, sometimes writers who've been around for a long time, sometimes writers who are too successful. And I think that the editor doesn't know, nobody should meddle with their perfection. You know, so that doesn't mean I'm saying that the editor is always right. The editor is not always right. But if the editor has noticed something or is concerned about something or bumped on something while they were reading or reviewing or editing your material, at least it deserves you giving it a look and considering what the editor is saying, because even if you don't want to do what the editor suggests, you can certainly find a way to address the editor's concern in another way, you know, in a way that feels more organic to what you want, but addresses their concerns and satisfies that, you know? Yeah. But it is, it's a growing process. It's a learning curve for writers to get used to that. Love that. Chris, are you ready for a few Bonus questions we call a series of seemingly random questions. Sure. Sounds good. First one is not that random. I'm sure you get this question all the time. You know, you mentioned earlier your agent and, you know, for those writers listening who are hoping to get their foot in the door, whether it's through a query letter, trying to get an agent, do you have advice for those writers who are trying to break in? Oh, you know, my advice has changed in the time of COVID. I have to say, you know, I used to say, you know, save your nickels and Go to any local convention that you can get to for writers, particularly in genre, if you're a genre writer of any genre, because you can meet other writers and you can meet agents and you can meet editors and get to know more about the business. That's really hard to do right now, but a lot of those communities still exist online. And there are, you know, I can't think of the name of it, but there's a whole site dedicated to editors mainstream publishing companies telling you what they're actually currently looking for in manuscripts. What kind of stories are they looking for right now? I wish I could remember the name of it, but it can't be too difficult to find. So that's out there. I also always recommend people sign up for Publishers Marketplace if they're looking because they have a great tool where you can search 
all of the various sales and you could find out which editors bought which kinds of books from which agents and sometimes the range of what they might have paid. So you can get an idea of, oh, I've written a, you know, I've written a dark comedic mystery novel in which the private investigator is a dog, (laughs) you know, and you can actually sort of search around and you can find editors and publishing companies that have bought something similar to what you're selling and what agent represented that book. So I find that to be a useful tool, or I would find if I weren't working with my agent right now. And then I guess the number one thing is patience, you know, and persistence. And, you know, it's definitely a difficult time, but people are out there. People are still reading books, maybe more than ever right now. Would you say that self-publishing is a good option? I mean, obviously you're working with a pretty big publisher. For those who are starting out, would you say that maybe self-publishing first might be a good way in the door? I think that self-publishing is definitely an option. I think it's certainly something to be weighed. Once upon a time, it would have negatively impacted your chances of going to mainstream publisher unless your self-published book was a huge success. That's no longer true. And so it's certainly an option. But the one thing I would say is, and I don't have the education on this, I would really educate myself if I were going into self-publishing right now. I would educate myself not only as to the format, but as to marketing, as to I would really try to learn and go and see who's selling and what's selling and and how they did it. Because it's a really, you know, at a big publisher, the publisher can decide how much effort they want to put behind your book and how much money they want to spend to promote it. You know, what's the push they're going to give you? When you're self-publishing, you get to decide that. How much of your time, how much money, how much effort can you invest? How dedicated can you be? To doing that. And I think it starts with teaching yourself marketing, teaching yourself publicity, teaching yourself the self publishing that you need to do. And I guess the number one thing for me is the cover better be good. Love that. My next bonus question if you could take any writer, living or dead, to any fast food restaurant, which writer, which restaurant, and why? Oh, man. You know, there are so many possible answers to that. I have so many writers who, you know, I'd love to have Jack London. I'd love to, you know, there are so many, but the answer has to be my friend Rick Howdala, who passed away about seven years ago, seven and a half, maybe at this point. Rick was widely considered the other main horror writer, a phenomenal writer, mostly of ghost stories and a New York Times bestseller, but also one of my dearest, dearest friends had a heart attack and passed away. And he lived in Maine, and I would take him to Jackie's 2 in Perkins Cove in a gunkwit and make him get... <laughs> they have an amazing shrimp roll there. <laughs> but yeah. Love that. My last question. If you could choose one learning or insight from your entire career as a writer to pass along to those writers listening, what's that one thing you'd say? Oh, this is the easiest question you've asked. <laughs> No, it is. It is really, it really is. When I was 22 years old, my friend Steve Bissett, comics legend Steve Bissett, just when I'd met him, really, gave me the most important advice I've ever had. He said, understand every word of what you're signing and what it could mean later. Because even if you're not happy with what it means later, 
you can't be resentful if you understood it. You know, understand what you're signing. You know, understand what rights you're giving away, what it could mean to you financially, and weigh those things when you're making that signature. I just think it's so important because so many people, especially people who publish in the small press, but others as well, you know, they sign a contract and they don't understand what they're signing. They don't understand what rights they've given and how those things could be taken advantage of. So you just need to understand it because it'll save you lots and lots and lots of heartache later in your career. Love that. My last and most important question, Chris, did you have fun talking with us today? I know it felt like it went by so quick. Absolutely. Um, how did you feel? Absolutely. Listen, you know, I love this book. You know, I love writing Red Hands and I can't wait for people to get to read it. So I love talking about it, but I also love talking about, you know, writing in general in any way that can be helpful to writers who are struggling to find their way or who are trying to find a better way. So yeah, I'm always, always happy to talk about writing. The only subject I like better is reading. So. <laughs> As Chris mentioned, Red Hands is on sale December 8th through St. Martin's Press. If you're listening, please check it out, buy it. And Chris, did you want to plug anything else? Website, social media, Twitter, before you go? Listen, I'm on Twitter at Christoph, no E-R, because it was too long, at Christoph Golden. And you know, you can find me at ChristopherGolden.com anytime. Well, thank you again, Chris. It was really a pleasure. Thank you for your insights, your time. And uh, yeah, thanks so much. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.